the energy. Can we all just admit that I was right about Mac Jones from the start? He's good. He's not great. And they have made him worse by what they have done to him this year. The passion. This UVM team is the most athletic team I can remember in the eight years I've been covering them. They're that fast. They're that quick. They're that bouncy. The opinions on all your favorite teams. Craig Breslow might be great. But he's got to start spending money. I think he's going to, but he better start soon. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEB AM and FM, and WDEBradio.com. Full show tonight, all 90 minutes. We're up until 7 o'clock, and then it's Jazz with George Thomas. A lot of baseball today, some big breaking news, and it's not good news for us. On Red Sox, uh, on the Red Sox front, out of the winter meetings in Nashville, we'll talk about the Yankees getting Juan Soto. We'll talk about the Red Sox and their trade to the Yankees of Alex Verdugo. We're going to see Tom Karen of Nesson stop by on the phone at about 6:05. He'll be with us live, and uh, we got some notes on the Patriots as well as they get ready for Thursday night football tomorrow night against the Pittsburgh Steelers. You can get in on the text line 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. I am here. You are here. Danny is here. Danny, Lego. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont and Upstate New York's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, Rouses Point, New York, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sixandstuff.com. Also, the UVM women are in action right now. They lead Army 21-17. We'll have updates on that. The UVM men will take on Northeastern. We'll have some updates on that as we learn the official starting lineup here closer to tip-off to see about what Shamir Bogues' availability as well as Matt Barretos. Uh, again, you can get in on the text line. Let's start here. This is a terrible day for the Boston Red Sox, right? A terrible day for the Boston Red Sox. Uh, within the last five minutes, the New York Yankees have officially acquired Juan Soto, one of the best pure hitters in all of baseball from the San Diego Padres. Now, they've gotten, they had to give up quite a bit to get him. They gave up Michael King. They've given up a prospect who's one of their top pitchers, last name Thorpe, Johnny Brito, this kid Vasquez on the bounce. So they've given up a bunch of stuff. But as far as kind of major league pieces that they gave up, really it's just Michael King and catcher Kyle Higashioka. I don't think that's a whole lot when you're getting Juan Soto back. So maybe the prospects will end up doing well for San Diego. King is a good pitcher. I do like him. But as far as we are concerned right now, the Red Sox and their fans should absolutely be shaking in their boots because the Yankees have acquired Juan Soto. And that is a huge deal. I hate when the New York Yankees get better and the New York Yankees got better today. I hate when the Boston Red Sox, who finished last a year ago in the American League East, move further back from the pack, and that is what happened today. The New York Yankees finished fourth last year. They were already a little bit ahead of you. They have pulled even further ahead of you today in getting Soto. In getting Soto, the Yankees have acquired one of the best young hitters in baseball. They've acquired one of the best hitters, period, in baseball. I look at Soto. He is 25 years old. He just turned 25. In that time, he is already a three-time All-Star. He is already a four-time Silver Slugger. He is already a batting champion. He is already 
won a World Series title. He has already led the league in on-base percentage twice. I look, yes, pandemic shortened season in 2020, but Soto had an had a OBP of 490. He followed up the next year with an OBP of 465 at the age of 22. Make no mistake, this is a great player a great hitter with a great discernible eye with great power who's now going to be playing in that band box that is Yankee Stadium. He very well may hit 45 home runs in there, may hit 50. He's never hit more than 35. I'd be shocked if he doesn't break 35 this year. In fact, I think he gets 40. And now you look at an outfield that features Aaron Judge, Juan Soto, and now Alex Verdugo, and you're talking about a DH of John Carlos Stanton who no longer needs to be a guy who is necessarily right in the middle of your order. He can now kind of check down a little bit in the order. Anthony Rizzo the same. The Yankees lineup just got deeper. It just got longer. It just got better. It just got more intimidating. And when that stuff happens, I worry as a Boston Red Sox fan. My goal is for the Boston Red Sox to be competitive this year. I have said I think that it is possible to be competitive this year if you make the right moves and if you spend the right amount of money and if you're willing to trade the proper amount of prospects. The New York Yankees, they just beat you to the punch, though. They just got, outside of Shohei Otani, the best bat on the market. And, oh, by the way, they're in on Yoshinobu Yamamoto. They very well may get the best arm on the market, too. The Yankees now have immense pressure on themselves, just like they do every year, but they've ratcheted up, as far as I'm concerned, to go out and win the World Series. But as we talk about the Red Sox trying to get back into contention in the American League, it just got harder today. And I absolutely hate that. The Yankees have become very, very intimidating overnight in the matter of minutes since they got Juan Soto. We're talking about a Yankee team last year that featured Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. And, you know, now... They're going to have Soto, Judge, Stanton. If they are healthy, which is always the big if, they are incredibly intimidating. You throw in a second year of Anthony Volpe, a healthy, a healthy year of Rizzo, who only played 99 games last year. Oh, by the way, on the mound, they've got Cold, who won the Cy Young. They've got Rodon, who I can't imagine will be injured and as bad as he was a year ago. So they've got him there also. They still need help on the pitching front. They could still use more in the bullpen. So are they ready to go all the way yet? Probably not. But if they further separated from you, they absolutely have. They absolutely have. Juan Soto is 25 years old. This isn't acquiring somebody who's 34 and over the hill. This is acquiring a guy who in 2023 makes the Yankees significantly better than you. And oh, by the way, also, he very well may re-sign there for a long-term deal, and he may be in New York for a decade. Now, Scott Boris is Soto's agent. Boris' clients typically always go to free agency, so I don't know that Soto is going to sign an extension with the Yankees pre-free agency. He very well may just play out the last year of his deal. He could leave New York next year, so they could have given all this up for a one-year rental, but they also could have Soto for the next 10 to 15 years potentially as a result of making this move. Kudos to them. They identified their weaknesses. Kudos to them. They went out and they made the move and they took the swing because everybody around them has taken swings, right? I look at the rest of the American League and Texas isn't stopping. I don't think Houston's going away. The, uh, you know, I look at, at Toronto who might get Otani and this would be total worst case scenario stuff. 
If the Yankees get Soto and the Blue Jays get Otani, and the best the Red Sox can do so far is a possible union between them and catcher Martin Maldonado, we are talking about dire times here in Boston already. Craig Breslow has been on the job for a week, and his competitors have already lapped him. Now, I don't blame I don't blame Breslow for not getting Soto. I don't think the Red Sox really had what it took to get Soto. But his competitors have gone out and separated themselves from the pack. This is bad news for the Red Sox. Joe in Richmond says, the rich just keep getting richer, but it doesn't matter until they win a championship. How long uh, has that been? Money and the best players don't mean much. Joe's right, right? We've seen it. Tampa Bay Rays won 99 games last year, had a low payroll. Baltimore Orioles won 101 games last year, didn't really go out and make any major moves in free agency or at the trade deadline. You can be very good in baseball without a high payroll. Texas Rangers also won the World Series. What did they do? Spend three-quarters of a billion dollars in consecutive off-seasons on Corey Seager, Marcus Semien, Nathan Evaldi, trade for Jordan Montgomery, spend on Jacob deGrom. They, they won the, that team won the World Series. So you can win that way too. And when we talk about a Yankees team that has Judge and Cole and Stanton and Rizzo and Volpe, who's the rookie of the year in the American League, and now Soto, plus maybe Yamamoto, that's a very, very dangerous team in the American League. Again, they're not without flaws. They are not perfect. I don't think they are better today than the Texas Rangers. But I can tell you that no team in baseball has a better 1-2 or 2-3 in the American League than than where Judge and Soto fit in here. We thought that Seager and Semyon were great for Texas. Judge and Soto, it, that that's a different level. right? There is no easy way around the early part of that order for the, for the Yankees. If you are Red Sox pitching, you should be terrified today. Tech says Yankees just lapped the Red Sox. P.S. The last time the Red Sox traded a starting outfielder to the Yankees, it didn't work out great. He's talking about Babe Ruth. He's talking about Alex Verdugo. We're going to get to that in a, in a couple of moments as well. This is a bad day, though. This is a good day for baseball, as much as I hate it, right? It's a good day for baseball to see the winter meetings, get some sizzle to it. It's a good day for baseball to see a star on the move. It's a good day for baseball to see the Yankees back to relevance. It's a good day for baseball to see maybe the arms race building between the Yankees and the Orioles and the Blue Jays and it's not a good day, though, for me, because the Red Sox are getting left in the dust. Right? The Red Sox are getting left in the dust. And that is disappointing. Red Sox have a lot of needs on their wish list. They got a lot of, th- they need a second baseman. They need multiple pitchers. Nothing they need, though, is Juan Soto. Nothing they can get is Juan Soto. Unless they get Yamamoto. That's the only thing they can do now is get Yamamoto. I don't think that Craig Breslow is going to try to be like, oh, I have to respond to what they did getting, you know, getting Soto. But I'm telling you, Red Sox need a big strike. They need a big win. And they need Yamamoto badly. We'll get the latest from the winter meetings at about 6.05 from Tom Karen, our Red Sox insider over at Nesson. Uh, right now, we will talk about the move the Red Sox did make with those Yankees, trading away outfielder Alex Verdugo. What did they get? What are they saying about what the Red Sox got? What is Alex Cora saying? And are we going to miss Alex Verdugo? Talk about it all next on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Yeah, 
Yankees get Juan Soto. That was after last night when they acquired Alex Verdugo from the Boston Red Sox. Red Sox made just their seventh trade with the Yankees in the last 50 years. So here was the deal. It broke last night around 8 o'clock or so. Red Sox traded Alex Verdugo. They got three pitchers. Richard Fitz, Greg Weissert, and Nicholas Judas. Now, Weissert is a name maybe you'd know. He's been in the Yankees' bullpen for a couple of years now. He's kind of been up and down, but he's been a guy who's appeared at the major league level. Judas is a, I want to say he was the number eight prospect in the organization for the Yankees. So, um, he was an, excuse me, he was an eighth round pick. He was an eighth round pick. Um, look, Keith Law, the athletic, who I'm not a huge fan of, he doesn't like Verdugo, so he kind of just loves getting rid of Verdugo, period. But he doesn't think the Red Sox got back a ton of value for him. Said everything they got back is kind of nothing more than a middle reliever. So it's not, so he doesn't think this deal is that big a deal other than just that it was created by the Red Sox and by the Yankees. For me, there's three sides to the deal, right? There's three angles to the deal. And you can get in on the text line with your thoughts on any of these three at 802-585-3026. There is one. Do you mind trading Alex Verdugo, period? Two, do you mind trading Alex Verdugo to the Yankees? And three, what does the deal now then mean for the Red Sox? Right? Those are the three angles to it. So number one, let's just start here. I don't have a problem with Alex Verdugo being traded. I have been saying that for months. Right? I was saying that even in the season for the Red Sox, that I thought Verdugo should be traded. I thought he was going to be traded. And there are several reasons why. One, he's in the final year of his contract. I am not going to pay him 80 to 100 million dollars. I'm just not going to. So if I'm not going to pay him 80 to 100 million dollars, I need to decide what exactly is the most valuable thing. Is it keeping Verdugo? And trying to win a World Series, I don't think I'm there. Or is it moving on from Verdugo now and trying to get something of value for him? That is where I was always willing to go, right? I never wanted to pay Verdugo. And if you think he wasn't going to get that money, he is. Or he's going to want it at least. Andrew Benintendi got $85 million from the White Sox. Masataka Yoshida, sight unseen, got $90 million from the Red Sox. Verdugo's going to be in that range. I wasn't going to give it to him, so if I'm not going to, I was always in favor of moving him. Now, I thought Verdugo might net me back a major league pitcher one for one. Red Sox elected to go with three pitchers and kind of throw numbers at their pitching problem. I, I can't knock that. Would I have liked to see them get a starter that's already major league ready? Yes, but one, I don't know what the market was like, and two, I gotta at least be excited by the Craig Breslow and Andrew Bailey pitching factory that is being developed in Boston, right? This is what Breslow was brought in to do. Take in arms and make them better and more interesting. Well, they just got three arms. Let's see the pitching lab go to work. Can Weiser, Judas, or Fitz become guys that are better than what Keith Law says they are? Keith Law says they're nothing more than middle relievers. Can Breslow and Bailey find a way to make them better than that? Can we get power leverage relievers out of it? Can we create a closer out of it? Can one of them be a starter? I don't know, but now I'm willing to try. You brought in a guy who's renowned for his pitching prowess and his pitching plans. Craig Breslow now needs to be allowed to cook in the lab. So I was always okay trading Verdugo. And on top of the money thing, I don't think Verdugo is that great, to be honest. 
Like, I think this team will be perfectly fine without him. I give him credit. He can be a fun player, and he does hit a lot of doubles, which I love extra base hits. I love doubles. But beyond that, to me, he's an average player, right? He had 13 home runs last season. Doesn't hit for a lot of power. He hit 264 last season. He's not a batting champ, right? Like, if you if you can't hit for any power but you hit 330, like a Luis Arias does, I'd see value in that. Verdugo doesn't do either of those things. He only had 54 RBIs. He's not a true run producer. He only had five stolen bases. Heck, he's not a true speedster. He only had a 324 on base percentage. He's not a guy with a great eye. And then his OPS plus, which I don't want to get too into the analytical weeds here, but understand this. 100 is is an average major league player. 100 is an average major league player. Alex Verdugo's OPS plus, 100. What does that make him? An average major league player. I, I, I don't think he's that great. I know we wanted him to be great because he came in the Mookie Betts trade. We wanted to believe he's better than he was because we wanted to think the Mookie Betts trade wasn't as bad as it was. At the end of the day, Verdugo's just an average ball player. He does some things well. He had a good year defensively. Hit a lot of doubles, but hits for no power, doesn't run well. And oh, by the way, little immature, showed up late to practice, or showed up late to the game on that, uh, in the biggest series of the year, I think, against Toronto. Can't have that. So I, I don't need Alex Verdugo on my team. I have no problem with him being traded. And I don't really have a problem with the haul that they got because I'm supposed to believe that Craig Breslow and his pitching lab can go and make guys better. And now I'm going to get an opportunity to, to see the proof of that. I'm going to get the opportunity to see the proof of that. Uh, Danny, it's going to take me a second to find it here, but I want to play the Alex Cora audio. Cora was talking at the uh, winter meetings today, and he was talking about the trade of Verdugo and talking about the return that the Red Sox got. Go ahead and play it for me. We got three cable guys, and as you guys know, where we at right now as an organization, we got a lot of good position players. The part that we need to get stronger is the pitching side of it with Craig and obviously Andrew. I think that's the way uh, we're going to attack the offseason, keep getting better in that aspect. And it opens the the, the, the window for Abreu, for Duran, to Rafaela to step up in spring training and try to win the job. We'll talk about that in a second. I may have you play that again real quick in a minute, Danny. Texter says, Kyle in South Burlington, Brady, these pitchers may turn out to be assets for a future trade. They might. They might, right? I talk about the Craig Breslow pitching lab being used to develop these guys. If they want to turn someone around and go get someone for them, maybe they will. But nonetheless, I think these players can end up being useful to the Red Sox. Another text says, uh, yeah, the Verdugo trade represents whatever value the Red Sox got out of the Betts trade, unfortunately. Look, the Mookie Betts trade was a loss. It's time to move on. Okay? Hyam Bloom came in. His hands were basically tied. He was told to shed payroll. He was told to lower payroll. And the team did not have a great relationship with Mookie. They had taken him to arbitration. He had turned down multiple extension offers. There was kind of nothing left to do for Hyam Bloom at that point. And if you remember, the Red Sox ended up awful in 2020 and finished 24 and 36. So when Mookie Betts of being there made them go 36 and 24, no, it wouldn't have. So trading bets was kind of the only move on the board. Yes, you would have liked them to get better, but the Red Sox didn't have any leverage. The whole league knew what the situation was. So they got a guy in Verdugo who was a top prospect. 
he ended up to not be the guy you wanted him to be. Doesn't mean the process was flawed. Your hands were tied. You were up against the wall. You had to do something. This is what they did. It's time to move on. The Mookie Betts trade was a loss. It will be a loss. It will always be a loss. And there will be a win for the Dodgers. The Dodgers won a World Series in 2020, and Mookie's an MVP candidate this past season. Is what it is. It's over. Okay, it's over. I can't go back on that one anymore. But, yes, it, it, Verdugo is a guy I am fine trading. Question two on this. Are you okay trading Verdugo to the Yankees? That's where I have a problem. Okay? That's where I have a problem. I hate the idea of making my rivals better. The best position in baseball to be in is division champion. I know we all quibble about, oh, the one-seeded Braves got beat, whatever. The, the goal of a baseball season is to win your division. And the Red Sox just made their division rival better, and then maybe unknowingly their division rival got even better the next day by getting Juan Soto. Right? I need to be worried about how I can pass the Yankees, how I can pass the Blue Jays, not how I can go and fund them. Okay? Not how I can go off and fund them. I, I, Texer says trading to the Yankees is taboo. I, I don't know that it's taboo, but I'm not for it when I'm not necessarily getting immediate major league value right now. If the Red Sox had traded Verdugo for Glaber Torres, as has been kind of rumored about earlier in the offseason, I would have been okay with that because, yeah, you might be getting a little better in one spot, but you're getting worse in another. And I might be getting worse in one spot, but I'm getting better in another. That's a trade that I could justify and say, well, we each got a major league piece, and we each got some subtraction in another spot. This one is clearly a Yankees win. Even if these guys end up being good, they're not necessarily going to be good now. And for 2023, which I am concerned about, the Yankees have the clear advantage in this deal. And they've been given the clear advantage even further by their decision to go out and get Soto today. Question three on this thing. The third tentacle out of this deal. What does all of this mean for the Red Sox? I actually think it means a great deal. Danny, play me that same clip from Alex Cora again. We got three capable guys, and as you guys know, where we at right now as an organization, we got a lot of good position players. The part that we need to get stronger is the pitching side of it with Craig and obviously Andrew. I think that's the way uh, we're going to attack the offseason, keep getting better in that aspect. And it opens the, 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 the window for Abreu, for Duran, to Rafaela to step up in spring training and try to win the job. That was the last part. That's what matters to you, right? The Red Sox, by trading Verdugo, have started to clear their outfield glut. Okay, They still have, if you look at the outfield, They've still got Jaron Duran. They've still got Rob Refsnyder. They've still got um, William Abreu. And they've still got Masataka Yoshida. That's still already four guys there. With Verdugo gone, there's room, though, for Abreu maybe to become an everyday player. Maybe Sedan Rafaela, to Cora's point, can step up and become a major league player. Those guys were blocked before. Now they're a little less blocked. So you're... 
internal options in the outfield that you like. Abreu and Rafaela have a clearer chance to playing time, have a clearer chance to making the roster. Also, I believe that the Red Sox will use Masataka Yoshida mostly a designated hitter this year. And I'm going to talk with Tom Karen about this in a little while. But Verdugo's gone. If Yoshida is mostly a DH, then once again, there is even more room in the outfield. Maybe you can get an outfield of Duran and Abreu and Rafaela, all three of them at once, with Yoshida at DH. Absolutely think that is a possibility. It also opens up the possibility for the Red Sox to go and get a right-handed hitting outfielder, which they need. Verdugo's a lefty. Duran's a lefty. Val, uh, uh, Abreu is a lefty. You need a righty in there. You look around the Red Sox lineup. Casas is a lefty. Devers is a lefty. The only righty they've really got is Trevor Story. The only righty with some power is Trevor Story. You need another one. Do they now want to go get Teoscar Hernandez? Do they now want to go get Lord Escoriel Jr.? That option is available to them. They both play, you know, have the ability to play right field. Hernandez did. Guriel was in left at one point, uh, in left last year, but maybe they could play right field. And you've addressed a right-handed outfield shortage. Maybe they could bring back Adam Duvall. I don't know. But these are the opportunities now available to you because you move Verdugo. He was a good-ish player. But as the OPS Plus suggested, he was a completely just average big leaguer. And by the way, Keith Law called him nothing more than a platoon player. Said he hit 238 in his career against lefties. People need to realize that the Red Sox were wrong trying to play him every day. I don't know that that's fully the case, but I know he's not the $100 million player that he's going to want to be, at least for me. So I was fine moving on. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Winter meetings heating up in Nashville. Our guy, Tom Karen, Red Sox insider at Nesson, is there. What does he think about the Verdugo trade? What does he think about the Soto move? And what about the big news involving Joe Castiglione? We'll talk about it all next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. We are efforting Tom Karen, TC, is milling around the hotel lobby, I am sure, covering the Red Sox and what is going on at the winter meetings right now in Nashville. So we'll get TC on here uh, as soon as we are able to. But there was one other piece of Red Sox news that was actually good news today. How about a round of applause for Joe Castiglione? Oni, our, or Joe Castiglione, our guy, Joe Castiglione, what are we talking about? Joe Castig, our, yeah, Joe Castiglione, our guy here, uh, the voice of the Red Sox from WEEI, you hear him all summer long here on WDEV, the home of Red Sox baseball as well. Joe Castig got a big honor today. He was named the winner of the Ford C. Frick Award, which means that next year at the Baseball Hall of Fame, he's going to be honored with the other guys who are going into the Hall of Fame as the Kind of the, the, you know, it's like a legacy broadcasting award. So he's not a Hall of Fame electee, but he is a guy who is uh, getting the Ford C. Frick Award. So uh, big props to Joe Castig. Let's go out to the phone line now and bring on Tom Karen, who is with us. TC, live at the winter meetings in Nashville. How are you? 
Doing well, Brady. How you doing? I'm doing well as well. We got a lot to get to, but let's wrap up that point there. Joe Castiglione, the voice of the Red Sox on this here radio station, 41 years as the voice of the Sox, getting the Ford C. Frick Award uh, next summer in Cooperstown. Pretty cool honor for one of the uh, the Red Sox lifers. Very cool and so well deserved. Uh, there isn't a classier guy, a nicer guy, a more gracious guy in this business. He's seen it all. I mean, he has seen it all and called it all. And, uh, you know, he's, he's our Vin Scully and I'm, I'm so happy for him because I know it means a lot to him. And, uh, I'm just thrilled for Joe and his family that he'll be in Cooperstown where he belongs. See, see, let me ask you a, a nerdy question. What is kind of the relationship like between the broadcasting guys on TV and the broadcasting guys on the radio? I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I always thought they were rivals of each other. I guess at the end of the day, they are all on the same team. But how well do you know Joe considering you're not always at the stadium, you're in studio, or at least you were prior to the last two years or so? Yeah, no, I know Joe pretty well. I mean, I spent a couple of years as a sideline reporter. And, and, you know, on and off over the last few years, I've done some radio games with Joe. Uh, did a few regular season series right. and uh, a bunch of spring training games when I would jump over and help them out when they were between analysts and stuff. So uh, I know Joe well. He's great. We we all get along. You know, when we travel, and I travel to a few series a year still, uh, you know, you're all on the – the team charter. Remember, the, the radio and TV broadcasters, we get to go on the team charter where the rest of the media does not. So, you know, we're kind of our own little subculture of mm-hmm. that traveling unit, right? The players are one and the most important group, and then you got the coaching staff and the medical staff that all travels along the support staff. And then you've got, you know, just a few Nesson and WEI people in the back of the plane. And uh, so we end up spending a lot of time talking and telling stories. And, and, and Joe's always great because, you know, he can spin a web with the best of them. <laughs> well, a great honor for Joe Kostig, again, the voice of the Red Sox, 41 years, the Ford C. Ford C. Frick Award winner for the uh, 2024 class at the Baseball Hall of Fame. All right, TC, we're going to get to the Red Sox in a moment, but i got to tell you I'm in a very bad mood now as of about the last hour. I hate the idea of the Yankees getting better. I hate the idea of the Yankees getting much better, and I really hate the idea of an Aaron Judge, Juan Soto, 1-2 or 2-3 batting order. This is not good news. No, it's not. I mean, they're loading up, and, and you know, the, the hot rumor down here the last couple of days is that Toronto is waiting on Shohei Otani. You drop him in the middle of that lineup, and the best division of baseball gets a whole lot better. And the Red Sox, you know, other than uh, trading Verdugo for minor league pitching, uh, haven't done anything yet. So they need to do something here. They need to get back in the race. They need to bring back a little bit of the luster of what the Boston Red Sox are. Uh, because right now, you know, the Yankees clearly seem hell-bent on, on reclaiming their status as as one of the top franchises in the sport. And the Red Sox so far have not done that. Craig Breslow doesn't strike me as a guy who's going to be overly reactive. I don't see him saying, okay, now we have to strike because everyone else is striking. Do you think ownership spurs him along or opens the wallet further to try to get a guy like Yamamoto because they see the arms race developing? I, You know, it's a great question, Brady. I don't know. I, I just really don't know because we've seen a different attitude, you know, certainly over the last four years under High and Bloom. Was it Bloom? Was it the ownership, the, the combination of the two? I, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. And I'm not sure anybody does. We all sort of have theories. And, and you know, it was, was it Bloom trying to do it a certain way? Was it owners telling him you can't spend the money? I don't know what the number is. I don't know what the payroll, uh, you know, the budget is for next season, but – 
you know, the old days of just going toe to toe and battling with the Yankees over the top free agents, they seem gone. And I'm not sure if they're coming back until they go sign a premier free agent. You know, and until you tell me Yamamoto or Jordan Montgomery or one of these guys is coming to Boston, uh, I, I'm still skeptical that they will try to go toe-to-toe and spend the money with the Yankees. Tom Karen, Red Sox insider at Nesson with us here on the Brady Farkas Show. He's live at the winter meetings in Nashville. A lot to get to. Red uh, TC, we talked about the Verdugo trade in the last segment. I've got three kind of discernible angles to it. I'm just going to start with angle one first and foremost to you. Are you okay with the Verdugo trade Period. Are you okay with Verdugo being dealt? Yes. Are you okay with him being dealt <laughs> it, to the is Yankees? This single, is this is this short answer? Uh, it, yes. Yeah. Okay. Are you okay with him being dealt to the Yankees? Yes, I'm okay with him being dealt to the Yankees. Okay. I would be too. The thing that bothers me a little bit though is that they're not getting a major league player in return. And look, I'm okay with the three pitchers they got generally because now I want to see them enter the Craig Breslow and Andrew Bailey pitching lab. But if we're trading with the Yankees and making the Yankees better, I'd like to make them weaker in another spot. I would have been okay with the Verdugo for Torres trade one for one that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. I don't know that I love them getting better at the major league level and us not though. Yeah, although it is interesting, and, and, and Cora was, was with us this morning. We spent some time with Alex this morning, and he was talking about that. He goes, listen, at the end, you gotta, you got to look at the players you're getting and not worry about what's happening to the team that you're trading with. Uh, so, so kind of saying the exact opposite of what you said, right? Hmm. Not worrying about making them weaker or what you're giving them. They like the pitchers they got, um, the, the – you know, the, the, the three of them are interesting. One of them does have, what, 20 games of, of major league yeah. uh, experience, though he wasn't great at the, uh, at the major league level, but, but he was really good at the AAA level. Richard Fitz is the guy uh, that they really like. He's the starter, 152 AA innings last year, struck out 163 batters. Um, and, you know, there, there, there's a young guy who hasn't even started this pro journey yet. <clears throat> And then Weissert is uh, the guy with 20 major league innings, but he pitched pretty well, a sub-3 ERA at AAA. So here's the thing. You know, their pitching depth is almost non-existent at the upper minor league levels, and, and this trade did a lot to improve that. But also, and, and I know Alex Gore is going to say all the right things. I talked to Aaron Boone today about Verdugo. I talked a lot with Alex Gore about Verdugo. And I just, there's no doubt in my mind, that they did not want him back. I don't think Alex Cora wanted him back. I think it's as simple mm. as that. And, and not because he's a major problem in the, in the clubhouse. He's not. He's, he's you know, a guy who, who has some discipline issues, and they, they had to bench him twice last year. But I think the worry was how the final year of his contract would affect him. He's made it clear he wants a big contract. And – you know, we, we've just finally gone into a stretch where we, you know, we had the whole bets thing hanging over them for a while. Then the Bogarts thing was felt like a year and a half and talking about his contract. I think the last thing the Red Sox wanted was to be dealing with Verdugo talking about his contract to the media. The media asked him about a contract and, and that whole thing. They didn't want him here for the final year of his contract. And I don't think they wanted to sign him to a big contract. Uh, so you, you got to make the move. Do you do it now? Do you do it at the trade deadline? Uh, they felt they got pitching now. We'll see what he does with the Yankees. You know, it's a one, you know, he's got one year left. Left-handed bat, obviously, can, uh, 
can 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 probably use Yankee Stadium to his benefit. Although he's better when he uses all field and doesn't get pull happy, and he tries to get pull happy with a short porch and right, that'll probably hurt him. Uh, I would expect one thing. I think that I know about Verdugo is he's a big stage guy, and I think he's going to have 13 really good games against the Red Sox this season. Hmm. He's going to be highly motivated. I certainly hope not, but it certainly is possible. Kind of the third tentacle to everything, TC, was what does this now mean for the Red Sox? And I guess my first thought is the Red Sox have started now to clear their outfield glut a little bit. The way I see this going, and I might be wrong, you know, we're hearing all this talk down there, oh, the Red Sox are still in on Justin Turner. I'm not buying that, TC. Breslow's made it pretty clear he wants to rotate around the position and not keep one guy anchored to it. I see now... Yoshida playing more DH and being kind of the, the the leader in the clubhouse for that. The rest of the outfield being open. Abreu, Duran, Ref Snyder, uh, uh, Rafaela maybe. I see that now being possible. Do you see it the same way? I do, although I thought it was interesting. And I interviewed Alex, I'm sorry, I interviewed Craig Breslow uh, just a little bit ago for, for the show. We're going to air tonight at 10. And he said point blank in an ideal world, he would go get some experience to add to that group. Okay. So I think, I think freeing up, don't forget they, they got whatever, four million or so that they got rid of with your, the Urea deal. Now nine point something. Turner, if you don't bring him back, Duval, if you don't bring him, they freed up some money here. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Lourdes Gurriel, uh, as a potential. I've heard the name Teoscar Hernandez. Uh, kicked around here as somebody that the Red Sox could be interested. I haven't heard that from the Red Sox, but there's been a lot of scuttlebutt about that. I wouldn't be surprised if they go out and get an older, more veteran defender. Uh, uh, Michael A. Taylor is somebody they've been talking about. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I, I just I think there's going to be another outfielder put into the mix, and that would take the pressure off rushing Rafaela because I'm not 100% sure they feel his bat is major league ready. He, he would be the best defender of the group already. Uh, but if you could get him to, you know, be, be a little more selective at the plate, especially with two strikes, and, and he may need a little more seasoning in AAA to get to that. So we'll see. I think they'll add an outfielder, though. Red Sox uh, insider Tom Karen with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Breslow said yesterday that they he acknowledges they need help at second base. He sees that coming more likely via a trade than free agency, so that would knock out a guy like Whit Merrifield. We've talked a little bit about Jorge Polanco. We've talked about Jonathan India. Do you think it's a bigger name maybe at second base like that, or is it someone I'm not thinking of right now? It's probably someone we're not thinking of because I just get the feeling that I, I, that's the way it works, right? I mean, uh, India is an interesting guy, and, and there's been a lot of talk about him moving, and, and that would certainly work. But the thing is, you know, and I, that's why I told you this in the past. I thought Whit Merrifield would be a great answer there because you could get him probably for a year, right, or two, and then you know that just, just it's just a placeholder for Marcelo Meyer, and and you don't want to sign someone that you're going to have for a long time or trade for someone who's going to be a part of this because Story's here for a while, Meyer's going to be here for a while. Uh, you should be by the end of this year, if not the beginning of next year, all set up the middle. So I don't know. I, I, I really don't know where that'll come from, but my guess is it would be a name that, that we're not thinking about right now. Or, you know, I mean, uh, Guriel has played a little bit of infield. There's some guys who have a lot of versatility, so maybe the outfielder I was talking about winds up being part of the mix at second base as well. Backup catcher conversation, Martin Maldonado, the guy with the Astros who been part of three World Series teams with the Astros, certainly knows how to handle a staff, a guy Alex Cora I know really, really likes. What are you hearing? 
maybe about him? And is there anything else that uh, that you're hearing down there in Nashville? Well, the, the, it's funny, he's not here, right? He's in the Dominican Republic, but Raphael Devers uh, raised a lot of eyebrows with his eyes-open eye emoji, a picture of him <laughs> batting in front of uh, Maldonado, uh, kind of lobbying to get his, uh, his friend here. Uh, I haven't heard anything about Maldonado. I, I've kind of been told they're not really looking at a catcher right now, so I'm not sure that's, uh, that's going to happen, uh, much to the dismay, apparently, of, uh, of Raphael Devers. Uh, and, but I think, you know, listen, it's all about pitching right now. We know that. Uh, the talk is Yamamoto is going to be here. The Yankees have said they're meeting with him on Monday. We've heard the Mets report that they've uh, been over there and, and met with him. Uh, the Red Sox are being really tight-lipped and will not even say if they are one of the finalists that are going to meet with him. But I, I do know that they have been doing everything they can over in Japan where they have people to uh, to try to let him know that they want him and to try to put on that full court press, but we'll see where it goes. I mean, I you know I, I just think uh, that they're going to make their I, I I do think they're going to make an offer and I think they're going to make their best offer and I think they're going to try really hard to get him even though it's going to be an absurd number. But the question is, is somebody else going to offer more? I mean, you just can't control that, you know. And if the Yankees or the Mets just throw more than you throw at them, then you lose out again in the fan base. Not going to like that. And then you're kind of stuck scrambling for plan B. But as of today, as about an hour ago, Craig Breslow told me, without telling me anything about what plan A is, he said, our plan A for pitching is still in place. It's still available. We're still going after it. I'm assuming that means Yamamoto. So we'll see. Certainly could be. Uh, TC, where do you think? Otani's going to sign by the time we talk next week are the reports. Dodgers, Angels, Giants, Jays. What's he going to choose? Uh, I'm still going Dodgers. Although the, 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 I'm telling you, the Blue Jays thing is really interesting. And somebody I know up in, up in Toronto, close to the team, was telling me that, you know, Rogers is a, is a multi-billion dollar company, right? And, and they're, they're a huge cell service provider up there. And, and would it be interesting if they threw a, a ridiculous number at him and tried to use him as their way to enter the cell phone market in, in Japan. Mm. Uh, and if you start looking at it as a business investment, then maybe that $600 million isn't so ridiculous. But I still think at the end of the day, the Dodgers make the most sense. I think it'll be $600 million. And, uh, and even though Dave Roberts may have hurt their chances by <laughs> act, being, being bold enough to admit they've spoken with Otani, yeah. Uh, I think that's where he ends up because it's just the easiest fit. TC, I'll let you in on a little secret here. The Blue Jays home opener next year is April 8th to Monday against my Mariners. I've got four tickets in Toronto for that game. If Otani's there, I will no longer have four tickets for that game because I will be selling them. <laughs> yeah, you'll buy a new widescreen and watch it at home. There, there you go. Absolutely. There you go. So, TC, thanks for making time. I know it's a kind of a, a crazy week for you down there. We appreciate it, and we'll catch up again in seven days. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks, Freddie. Appreciate it. Absolutely. There goes Tom Karen, our Red Sox insider over at Nesson down at the winter meetings in Nashville. All right. So, I mean, Yamamoto is still in play. I don't know that the Red Sox are going to get him. Look, the Mets are not getting Otani. The Yankees are not getting Otani and they don't have Soto locked up for 10 years yet. So I think they're both still, they're both obviously in play. The Mets are going to be able to throw the most money at him. And here's the thing about Yamamoto too. He has said, 
that he wouldn't mind playing with another Japanese player. I think the question was kind of phrased like basically, do you want to be the only Japanese player on the team so you could be the star? Well, look, if he goes to New York, he's got Kodai Senga on the team. If he comes to Boston, he's got Yoshida on the team. If he goes to the Yankees, there's no other Japanese player on the team right now. If he goes to, he's not going to go to Toronto, but Kikuchi's on the team up there. Maybe that helps Otani. I don't know. So Yamamoto's in play and the Red Sox need him. Now, do I want to throw 700 million at him? No, but, and I, I get TC's point about not just responding to what other teams do, but you need a generational pitcher. You need the guy that Chris Sale was supposed to be. And Yamamoto is that guy. 2,500 miles an hour. Three-time MVP, I think, in Japan. Daddy can check me on that if he wants to, but I think multi-time at least MVP over in the, uh, in the NPB, which is the Japanese Professional League. So, um, that's the guy you need. Right, they need help in second base. They can use always help in the bullpen. They need starting pitching. They need frontline starting pitching. And Yamamoto was it. And I hope they find a way to go out and make it happen. Yeah, Danny, I do have four tickets for uh, opening day in Toronto next year. If Otani goes there, I I'll be curious as to what happens to the value of those tickets. Sell them. Well, that's that that's what I'm gonna do if Otani gets there. But I'm curious as to you know how. Great it will be. I can tell you my seats are in the upper deck and like the last row of the upper deck. So they are not great seats in terms of closeness. They are in the, uh, they are in the ballpark. But if Otani goes there, I'll be curious as to what the, uh, the markup on those tickets will be. And look, they're playing the Mariners. I'd certainly like to go to the game, but if you told me that the number got astronomical for Otani, I could, I could be swayed. That's for sure. So. New car. I don't know that I would be able to sell my last row of the upper deck tickets for a new car. Not sure about that. Um, good stuff from TC. Let's update you on what's going on right now in the UVM women's basketball game right now. Catamounts are playing Army. There are 6.45 left in this game, and UVM is up 11, 48-37. Danny, it's been kind of a weird game. We've each had it on in our studios and, you know, kind of watching it out of one corner of our eye here as we go. UVM, is, we've talked a lot about their offensive struggles. We talked about it yesterday with Emma Utterback. They've only gotten over 60 once this season. They're at 48 now with six and a half minutes to play. They may get to 60, but by the aid of free throws, there have been stretches in this game where offense has been better, but there have been stretches in this game where they've really gone ice cold. I think they've got only one three in this game if I've watched tightly enough. So they continue to not shoot well from the outside. They're at their best when they turn their defense into transition buckets. A team that can't shoot from the outside and then can turn their defense into Emma Utterback just running faster than everybody else and getting down the lane. That's kind of their best bet right now, right? Like I, I think, Daddy, would you would you agree with that? Yeah. Like their their best offense is Utterback just outrunning the pack, and either she outruns the pack and scores herself, or she outruns the pack and gets the defense scrambling and then kicks it to somebody. I've seen her kind of dish off the ball multiple times to Delaney Richardson or Emma Olsen, uh, or uh, Anna Olson. But, like, that's their best offense. So You can tell they prefer the semi-transition type of offense. No, they definitely need to get into transition because without Catherine Gilwee, and, like, there goes Utterback again, right? She just, like, just raced past the defender, and she scored in the lane easily there, and they're up 15 all of a sudden, 52 to 37. This is not to take away from Angela Matic or Paula Gonzalez because both of them are playing point guard, and both of them, I think, are filling in admirably. But when Catherine Gilwee is there, when she's healthy, 
she's really able to get everybody into advantageous scoring positions. Without her, the point guard play becomes a little more rickety. And when it becomes a little more rickety, everything else becomes just a little bit off. And that's what you could feel about this offense in the half court. When they're in transition and Utterback is leading everything, they are far, far better. And that's a spot right now where they're going to have to live in. 52-37 with just over five minutes to play. We do have news on the UVM men's basketball team, by the way. Not good news. Shamir Bogues and Matt Verretto, as we feared, both going to be out today. Both going to be out with those injuries. Bogues with the ankle injury. Verretto with the eye problem. They're both out. They're both listed as day-to-day. Northeastern is 4-5 and five on the season. But when you're playing without two of your, well, maybe your two best players, or at least two of your three best players, that is going to be a problem anytime you're on the road. So we'll see what happens for the Cats tonight on the men's side. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. We come back. Greg Bedard of the Boston Sports Journal has some words about Bailey Zappi. Do we agree with what he's saying? That's next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. The Patriots are taking on the Steelers tomorrow. Danny, can you buy, can you believe we're already back to another Pats game? I can't imagine playing after three days of rest. Yeah, well, Patriots and Steelers tomorrow. It's going to alter our programming. We will not have a show tomorrow, by the way. Uh, so the pr- uh, pregame show begins at 5.30. The kickoff is 8.15. Patriots are coming back at it, right? 2-10 and 10 after that 6 nothing loss, disheartening loss against the uh, Los, uh, Los Angeles Chargers over the weekend, the game that Danny was at. So we do it all again tomorrow. It's going to mean Friday we're going to have another set of unpacking the Patriots. Hopefully there's something to unpack this time, Danny. I'd like to see some points. I'd like to see a little offense. I'd like to see some takeaways. I'd like to see, I can't imagine, like, bless anyone's soul that isn't a Patriots or a Steelers fan that's watching this game. A Bailey Zappi, Mitch Trubisky quarterback experience in prime time. Like, this is where we're at in the NFL season. Zappi against Trubisky. Uh, Zappi, I said on Monday, I thought he did some good things, right? His mobility in the pocket. I thought he did some good things. Greg Bedard of the Boston Sports Journal says he was exponentially better than Mac Jones. As far as Bailey Zappi, which I'm sure, you know, what you're getting into. Yeah. Uh, is it better than where Mac Jones was? Absolutely. Um, it, you know, it definitely was. I mean, it wasn't a ton better. But, you know, Zappi made some, some, some plays in this game, which we have not seen out of the quarterback position in some time. Danny, I have a hard time with that because I don't think Bailey Zappi is that talented, right? I do think he did some nice things. As I said, he was good in the pocket. He extended a couple plays. He got a first down. You know, running forward early on in the first quarter or whatever, he did some nice things, showed some good pocket awareness at times, especially early, delivered a deep ball down the field to Tyquan Thornton, the Tyquan Thornton dropped. Did some nice things. That said, look at the difference. Bailey Zappi has the ability to play free. And that's something that Mac Jones hasn't had in a number of weeks. It's always hard to evaluate your team or to evaluate individual players when the team is in this kind of there's nothing to lose mentality, right? The coaches now might be calling it a little bit differently. The players might be playing a little bit differently. Zappy is able to come in now, and he's able to let it fly. Mac Jones can't throw these passes. 
Mac Jones can't throw these balls because every time Mac Jones lets a ball go, he has a fear that he's going to be benched, and that's true. Right? And you can't tell me that that's not the case. Zappy's able to come in and play loose and play free. I'm saying sling it. Phil Perry's saying throw it down the field. Chris Hogan, I was listening to him earlier on his podcast, former Pats wide receiver, said, hey, I want to see him throw it down the field. Everybody at this point is kind of like, hey, throw it down the field. And if you, if you throw a pick, then so what? Mac Jones doesn't live in that bubble. Right? Mac Jones does not live in that bubble. So it's a little bit, when you tell me, oh, we did this better and that better, well, yeah, he also had restrictions taken off of him that Mac has had in place. Mac's been playing with one hand tied behind his back, and Zappi was allowed to go out and play schoolyard football. And he's going to be allowed to play schoolyard football for the foreseeable future. So it is hard trying to determine kind of where you're at at the end of a season when you've gone to the backup quarterback because that guy is able to play in a completely different way than the previous guy was. Mac hasn't been able to play free and loose in a very long time. I think he was able to play free and loose first two weeks of the season against, you know, uh, Philly and Miami. Then they went to New York and they played in the rain, so you're kind of playing naturally more conservative there. You start losing more games, you're worried about your spot, you're worried about being benched, and then everything is just tight. Zappy doesn't have to play tight. As for how tomorrow goes, Danny, I, I have no idea at this point. I, I, look, the Patriots are completely shorthanded. Ramondre Stevenson's got a high ankle sprain. He's out for several weeks. Might be out the rest of the season. Demario Douglas is out again tomorrow with the concussion. Juju's listed as, as questionable, and so is Devontae Parker. Like, we could go into this game with, with just Tyquan Thornton being, like, the only healthy wide receiver. Kayshawn Booty's not playing. So I think this is going to be an ugly low-scoring affair. But final score tomorrow, we very well may see 14-10. We may see 13-9. We may see 10-3. It's going to be low-scoring. It's going to be ugly. How many sacks for TJ Watt? Uh, against this line with Zappy a quarterback, I-, I would say the Steelers have a chance to get five sacks. Will they all be by Watt? No, but I think the Steelers have a chance to get five sacks. I, I think five sacks. Yeah, a, that sounds about right. Is a reasonable expectation there. Um, hard to believe we're just gonna, we're getting ready to go through the pain again tomorrow. Patriots and uh, and Steelers again. Our coverage. At 5.30. And, like, again, I've said this before, so I won't hammer on this. This is the few, this is the least amount of prep that I have done for Patriots games ever in my career. Because the games themselves really just don't matter. Right? They really just don't matter. I would like to see Jabril Peppers continue to play well. I would like to see Kyle Duggar make an impact. I would like to see Dietrich Wise if he's healthy because we had an illness last time. I'd love to see them get after the quarterback. There are things I'd like to see, but the results don't really matter. right? I'd like to see Tyquan Thornton reel in a pass or two, especially one down the field. I'll be able to take away some small takeaways from things like that, but at the end of the day, this game for me is solely about, okay, how did Zappy play? And I will say this, Danny, it will be interesting to watch Zappy play in good weather. All right, let's check the weather. Let me check the weather for tomorrow. Um... Because I want to see, because I have a, a big point to make about this. So this game is in Pittsburgh, and the weather for tomorrow is listed as 44 and cloudy. I'm sure that is the, well, let's see, yeah, 44 and cloudy. So it's not going to be overly freezing. It's not going to be precipitation. Danny, I actually think it's sneaky interesting in how Zappy plays and therefore how it reflects on people. If Zappy comes out and plays poorly, 
there could be people saying, like Max Camp could come out and say, see, not me. Nobody could do this, right? Nobody could play under these circumstances. If Zappi plays poorly in ideal football conditions, then Max Camp can say, see, not me. All them. They created this. If Zappi comes out tomorrow in good, good conditions and plays well, then Bill's Camp can say, see, it was never as bad as you all wanted it to be because, you know, Max is not really the guy. Now again, Zappi might be severely undermanned. He won't have Stevenson. He won't have, um, Booty. He won't have Douglas. If he plays well without them, then that's really going to reflect well on Bill, who can sit here and say, yeah, see, Mac, that's not really that good, right? See, we, we could have done this with somebody. In which case we would all say, then why didn't Zappi start earlier if he's so much better than Mac? But nonetheless, things would be a low scoring, ugly affair. A low scoring, ugly affair. Danny, I do think this is an interesting angle, by the way. Before the game on Sunday, I was listening to the Patriots pregame show. I was listening to Albert Breer, and he was talking about kind of the divide right now in the locker room between the offense and the defense. And this was before the 6 nothing loss on Sunday. Let me hear what Breer had to say. Um, some of that frustration, again, is is on the part of a defense that's felt the weight of having to carry the team through the last three months now, there are people in the building who would say on the flip side, like we're not exactly fielding the 85 Bears on the other side of the ball. But clearly there's a little bit of a disconnect there. and the- A little bit of a disconnect between the offense and the defense. Danny, I'll, just, I'll ask you first. Do you think that there's a big-time divide between the two units? Maybe not huge, but publicly they'll say the right things, but there's probably some resentment there. Oh, I think I think there absolutely is resentment. I mean, early in the year when the team was looking to win, then I think there's resentment because the offense was preventing the team from winning. Now we're at the point where the wins don't really matter, but I think the defense the defense doesn't want to be impacted negatively by the offense any further, right? Devon Godshaw said we're at the point now we're playing for the name on the front of the jersey or the name on the back of the jersey, excuse me, right? There is some selfishness that goes into the end of the season here. So if the defense is on the field more often, right, if, you know, if it's a 35-25 time of possession split, a 40-20 to 20 time of possession split, well, the defense is on the field longer. When the defense is on the field longer, they have a chance to get hurt. You get hurt, you impact your earnings in the future. There's going to be real resentment there. When you talk about the defense being on the field longer, chance the defense is going to get scored on. Defense gets scored on, that tape gets out there, and all of a sudden the other teams, and you're in free agency in the offseason or looking at trades, they're lowballing you because they think, well, hey, remember what happened in week 14 against Pittsburgh when you got beat for that touchdown? And you're like, yeah, well, I was on the play for my 80, on the field for my 85th play of the game. I, I think that's where the resentment comes in now. Resentment early in the season was about your, your impacting our ability to win. Resentment later in the season is your impacting my ability to get paid to be on a roster, and to put out good tape. When you get off the field in three and out every single possession, and I've got to go out there and play 85 plays, and now I'm tired and my technique is bad and I get injured as a result of it, no one's happy about that. So do I think it is causing heated locker room debate? No, but I think it is... Certainly something that exists. I think it's certainly something that exists. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVRadio.com. Freddie Coleman 
ESPN radio host, Freddie and Harry, is going to join us next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show here on DEV. Dueling interviews today. Our guy, Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio, Freddie and Harry with me now. Freddie, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm good, my brother Brady. How's everything with you? Everything was good. Tell me you saw it on uh, on Saturday night, UVM and Yale. Catamounts down five points with 3.8 seconds to play. Came back and won. I was in the building. Tell me you saw it, Freddie. I did see it, but more importantly, what was it like being in the building to see something like that? It was the weirdest thing. It was like the weirdest and wildest thing I've ever seen, to be honest with you. So uh, Aaron Deloney hits a layup 65-62 with 3.8 seconds to play. And I rolled my eyes. My dad was in town. I rolled my eyes, and I go, what, did that help him cover the spread or something? Like, I just made an off comment, like, <laughs> like there was no point in doing that because the game was over. And then all of a sudden, Freddie, offensive foul gets drawn on the inbounds pass, and then you get the ball underneath your own basket, and you hit the game-winning shot and the foul. I'd never seen anything like it. You never, ever foul a three-point shooter in that situation. And if you're going to foul a three-point shooter in that situation, you make sure the ball never gets above his waist to put any doubt in the referee's mind. And I know certain coaches will have a different game plan when it comes to that, but my, I've been the firm believer. If you have a three-point lead and they're eight seconds or less than the clock, come and get this hug. You are not going to be in a position to tie that basketball game. And if you can't get close to the shooter to do that, then you can't foul him and really allow those kind of things to happen. It was insane. It was a lot of fun. And UVM is going to be in action tonight against Northeastern. And Freddie, that's the uh, one of the games we're watching this week. The other being the Patriots on Thursday night football. God bless everyone's souls. A Bailey Zappi Mitch Trubisky primetime game. Uh, what did you think? What did you think of Zappi on Sunday uh, against the uh, against the Chargers in a shutout loss? I didn't think anything. There was nothing to think about, to be completely honest with you, Brady, because you see a guy that is clearly, clearly overmatched. And I know Bill Belichick is trying to find that diamond in the rough like he was able to get lucky upon when Tom Brady was in the sixth round and Wes Welker and Julian Edelman and other guys like that. But come on now, in modern football, you cannot allow to tell your team that mess that we think Brady, Bailey Zappi, is the guy that should be the quarterback going forward. He's going to get another chance to do it again on Thursday when you have a Mac Jones in the first round. So I don't know what's going on with the Patriots, but he clearly, clearly showed that guy might be a second-string quarterback in the NFL with this team, with somebody else's team at best, because that guy has no business being in the field as a starting quarterback, no matter what team that is. My producer, Danny, went to that game, and I, I'm trying to create a GoFundMe to pay him back for his weekend reimbursement to that game. But uh, now I was thinking further. My college roommate went to Bill's Browns in 2009, 6-3. Okay. The Bills lost to Cleveland, and Derek Anderson went 2-for-17 for 23 oh. yards and a pick and won the game for Cleveland, and the Bills still lost. Freddie, what's the worst game you can remember being at? That's pretty darn close because I remember doing the NFL ESPN radio and I said to myself, thank God I was not part of watching that foolishness in the building and paid money to see something like that. I think the worst game that I've ever been a part of was when, and this is something I was involved in, when we played against East Stroudsburg my junior year in football, we lost 63-20. to 20. You want to talk about a long bus ride, four and a half hours north back to Mansfield with a 63-20 to 20 burger upside your noggin. And believe me, they 
very quickly ran up the score. And I get it. You can do that when you're in that kind of position. You're in that kind of lead. But for me, that is the worst sporting event that I've ever been to. And I was a full, complicit partner in having that 63-20 to 20 game happen, not in our favor, but against us by East Stroudsburg back in 1985. I think I got beat by Oneonta State like 27-9 to 9, my freshman year of baseball. Yeah, twenty-seven to nine. Oh yeah. my, how many pitches? How many pitches did you guys go through? Uh, almost the entire staff, except for me. I was, <laughs> I was in bad, <laughs> I, I, I was in bad graces at that point. So I was, uh, I wasn't seeing, <laughs> I wasn't seeing the mound. So I wasn't a part of that one. But I took it on the chin uh, a few other times in my college career. That is for sure. Um, I mean, that is one of the things you say to yourself. Thank God that the coach doesn't <laughs> like me enough to put me out there. <laughs> Absolutely. So man, I look at the Patriots and I think about it, Freddie. They're going to finish here with a top three pick but right now they're in that number two spot are you in the take a quarterback no matter what uh club or are you thinking like hey we've seen what happened with lance we've seen what happened with darnold we saw what happened with trubisky maybe the safer pick is marvin harrison well, that's a really good question. I, I've always been a big believer. If you believe you can get a quarterback that high in the draft that you believe and you take a quarterback over a wide receiver, and that's not sliding how terrific Marvin Harrison Jr. I believe is going to be in the National Football League. But you get an opportunity that you t- have a chance to get a franchise quarterback. And you believe that guy's Caleb Williams, the quarterback out of USC, or Drake May out of North Carolina, or somebody else. You're not going to be in that position every time. You're hoping not to be in that position every time. But if you have an opportunity to take a guy that can really be that franchise, franchise changer at quarterback, you can't all of a sudden say, well, wait to take a quarterback later on and hope to make him a star. Those days should be over when it comes to that line of thinking when it comes to the Patriots because even you draft Marvin Harrison Jr., he's going to be the Garrett Wilson of your football team because you won't have a quarterback that's going to be able to get him the football. And in the New York Jets case, they thought Aaron Rodgers was going to be that guy. Now they go got to go back to Zach Wilson once again. So if you have a chance to get a guy that you believe can be a franchise quarterback if he's that high on your draft board, you don't take a Marvin Harrison Jr. number two. You take a quarterback at number two. Yeah, I agree with you as well. Uh, Freddie, you're more plugged into the college game than I am at this point here. I will be once kind of we get towards draft season, but we've heard a lot only about Caleb Williams and Drake May. What do we think about Jaden Daniels, this kid out of LSU? Could he be a guy who's in play for the Patriots that high? I tell you what, I don't know if he's going to be in play that high, but I think anybody that drafts him is going to get a steal because I think he is really, really good. And I know he has a slight frame, but it doesn't really matter if you can't catch him, the ball's out of his hands by the time you get close to him. And the NFL always bulks up guys, they'll make sure they have enough of that armor. But Jaden Daniels, man, boy, can he play. I'm a big, big fan. I don't know if he's going to go in the first round. If he does, it won't be that high. I could see him maybe being a late first round, early second round pick. But I think anybody that drafts that kid, out of LSU, man, they're getting a steal because I think he's going to be really, really good at the next level. Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio. Freddie and Harry with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Freddie, Celtics are out of the in-season tournament, lost a tough one against Indiana the other day. Uh, i got to tell you, Freddie, it, it took me a little while to warm up to the tournament. I wasn't sure when the games uh-huh. were, which game is a tournament game, which game isn't, who who's in our uh-huh. pool, what's our record. But once I started uh-huh. to get to the knockout round or get to the last day of the, of the, uh, the pool play, I really started to buy in. What have you thought of the in-season tournament so far? 
I thought it was a blast the minute I had a chance to see those games early on and just seeing how the players didn't check out and the fans in the buildings didn't check out. That says a lot for how many people wanted to see if this was going to work. And the minute they got a taste of it, it's okay, I want more, I want more, I want more. And how much fun was that game the other night between the Celtics and the Indiana Pacers? And believe me, if the NBA had their way, they'd be Bucks, Celtics on one side of the Eastern final and then the Lakers and anybody else on the other side. At least you got the Lakers and the Pelicans and you got Zion Williamson. But the fact that so so many NBA players and NBA teams and NBA fans were buying in and paying close attention. The one common denominator, Brady, that I heard was, this needs to go. I didn't hear that. I heard what, what, what can we do to make this a little bit better because this is pretty cool. That has been a saving grace for the NBA because you never know how things are going to land. That landed properly from the jump and it got even more and more attention that people are being more invested in. And I can't wait to see exactly what that's going to look like the semifinals this week and then the championship final next week in Las Vegas and they're going to take all situations. You know, I'm disappointed the Celtics are out of the in-season tournament. Ultimately, I know they have bigger fish to fry, so it's not the end of the world. But when you look at a team like Indiana, a team like New Orleans, a team that's younger, more ascending, up and coming, do you think this kind of thing can be a big kind of building block, jumping off point for a team like that? Well, it could be a building block for both of those teams, but also here's something else, Brady, on the other side. If you're the Boston Celtics, you're saying, man, that team's going to be really good. We better keep an eye, an eye on them. So it can't just be about Milwaukee. It can't be about Philadelphia because you may not see those teams until the second round. But you could have a first-round matchup with the Indiana Pacers. And as Tyree Halliburton showed, he can go. And here's a hard, hard guy to deal with, whether he's got the ball in his hands or setting up the ball for other people so they can make those kind of plays. That, I think, has been a kind of a benefit with the in-season tournament because potential playoff matches in the first round or the second round could possibly happen. And people got a chance to see that on a national level involving the playing games when they came to the knockout round. For a lot of people, they have any idea how much Indiana Pacers may be the best scoring team in the NBA. They got a pretty good look about that against the Boston Celtics. And if you're the Celtics, you can say, man, this is going to be a playoff-type atmosphere. We had a chance to deal with it. We could see this team again in seven games, potentially of this. It could kind of be kind of a precursor to, okay, what can we do to make sure that team that is on the come-up doesn't take our spot and continue to come up at the expense of us in the playoffs if we meet in the playoffs in the NBA? Freddie, I'll get you out of here on this kind of an off thing here. Um I was listening to Chris Carlin yesterday on your network, and he was talking about Army-Navy coming up this weekend, and that's going to be played at Gillette Stadium. So uh, it's going to be a great kind of you know tie-in to what we're doing here. But as someone and yourself who has lived in New York a lot of your life, i got to ask you, have you ever been to a game at West Point? Because I'm putting it on my bucket list if I keep hearing how great it is. Carlin loved it. Have you been there? Oh, my goodness. I can't tell how many games I've been to Mikey Stadium at West Point because I used to work part of the Army Football Radio Network for Mm. three years. So I had a chance to be with the late Bob Outer, who's the play-by-play voice, and Dean Darling, who is still the color analyst, and he and Rich DeMarco do a fantastic job. But I tell people all the time, if you get a chance to go to Mikey Stadium, that should not just be a bucket list item. That should be an item that you want to go to a game each and every year, even if it's one game a year. And it's always one of the coolest places where you see the cadets and you see the, the, the candidates, the officer candidates supporting their team, but so many people rally around Army football. And the best time to go is right in October when the leaves are settling and their foliage is happening and it's got a great background in the back of that stadium comes to Mikey Stadium. It is one of the coolest, coolest places to see a football game. I don't care if Army's playing a Division Three opponent. Just being there at Mikey Stadium, it is worth the trip to go to West Point, New York and have a chance to be a part of history from the past with Army football and being a part of that by being at Mikey Stadium. Well, all right. It's on the list. It's on the list now. I got to do it in 2024. Freddie, you're the best. Be well. We'll catch up next week. Thank you.
Always a pleasure, Brady. Take care. God bless you, Mike. Absolutely. There goes Freddie Coleman, our host over at ESPN Radio. Freddie and Harry, that is on uh, weekdays uh, in the afternoon. So Freddie is the best. Appreciate him. Again, UVM men's basketball tonight. The Cats are uh, out. Matt Verretto and Shamir Bogues. So it's going to be a tough one on the road at Northeastern. Patriots football tomorrow bumps us off the air. Get a day of rest, watch the game. We'll come back at it with our full takeaways on Friday, including our uh, Unpacking the Patriots segment. Patriots and Steelers tomorrow, 8-15. Bailey Zappi against Mitch Trubisky. Danny, have a great uh, have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow for the afternoon news service. Danny and I will be together again, but no show. We'll see you back here on Friday, right here on WDEV. AM and FM Jazz is next.